three weeks into a sermon series that I'm calling Upside Down Living because we are digging into the words of Jesus in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount where he gives us a list of beatitudes that he tells us are all describing one particular group of people. Anybody remember who those people are? Kingdom people who have submitted their lives to King Jesus so that they now think and live radically different than the rest of the world. And that's why the book of Acts, that's a history of the early church, actually gives us an account of one instance where Christians came into a city called Thessalonica and the people there had already heard about them. And they said this, oh my goodness, these people who have turned the world, say it, upside down, down, have now come here. Imagine that. How were Christians already turning the world upside down without buildings, budgets, blogs, or glossy brochures? I'll tell you how. Because Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He came to inaugurate a new kingdom that is filled with kingdom people who live and think radically different because they have submitted their lives to a new king and his name is Jesus. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and let's look at it again. Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. All right, all I want to do today is look at verse 4. Just verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because we're going to keep chewing our way through the Beatitudes one at a time. So what is Jesus talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Well, make sure you understand, he's not talking about mourning over a friend or a loved one who dies. He's also not talking about pining away after something that's just not happened for you yet in this life, something God's not given you yet, a shattered dream or a hope that has not come into reality yet for you. In a fallen, broken world, we're going to do plenty of grieving over both of those things, but Jesus is talking about something else. He is talking about a spiritual Morning. Just like last week he was talking about a spiritual poverty, not an earthly material poverty. This is a spiritual mourning over sin. And not just any sin either. Mourning over your own sin. And he uses the strongest word for mourning that they had in the Greek language that was most often used, yes, to refer to mourning for the dead because 
It was an emotion that had such intensity that it could not be hidden from those around you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So let's dig into it some more. What would this spiritual mourning look like in your life? Here's the first thing I want you to understand. Number one, when you are spiritually mourning, you'll see your own sin in specific and painful ways. Now, I don't know if what I just said stands out to you like it should or not, but let me help you here. Apart from the grace of God that brings you into an awareness of your own spiritual poverty and bankruptcy, we don't see our own sins very well, but instead think we see with laser-like precision the sins of who? Everybody else around us. So this, oh, this is a universal, debilitating human condition that can only be solved by the Spirit of God at work in your life. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, because here's what I think is cool. In Isaiah chapter 6, I do believe you see both of the first two Beatitudes played out and evident in the prophet Isaiah's life. Poor in spirit, mourning over sin. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am un." Done because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, did you see what Isaiah says in verse 5? Look at it again because I do believe it captures the first two Beatitudes. Undone or ruined shows you that he's been gripped with an awareness of his own spiritual poverty and bankruptcy. I got nothing in the presence of a holy God. Undone. And then woe is me is the emotional response that should naturally follow when you truly understand and begin to mourn over your own sinful and helpless condition. Is me, for I am undone. This is a man who's seeing his own sin in light of God's holiness and purity, so that he's undone and mourning over his spiritual condition. But I want to press this a little further because I want you to understand that when you are spiritually mourning, you don't just mourn over sin in general. 
You don't just mourn over sin in general. See, spiritual mourning is a heartfelt sorrow over specific sins. And this is worth noting. The reason I'm pointing this out is because our adversary, the devil, comes at this from a very different angle. And he has used this tactic to take advantage of some of you, I do believe, your entire Christian life. And I've been praying this week that this might be the week that God helps you to understand better the truth of God's word, that you might live radically different than you have so far. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Spiritual mourning has a precise and clear focus because it zeroes in on specific named sins. This is very different than having a general overall sense of unworthiness and failure that just settles over you like a wet, suffocating blanket of despair. I also want you to note, as I use that word despair, despair and mourning are not synonymous. Those are not the same things. To despair is to have a sense of futility and defeat that is brought on by a total loss of hope. See, here's what often happens to us. Jesus wants us to be spiritually mourning. Your enemy pushes you further to despair. Not this, but this. Because he wants us still to have hope. Hope, yes, see your sin, grieve over it, sorrow over it. You think about it even related to to physical death in this world, the New Testament tells us that we as Christians do not sorrow as those who have no what? Hope. Same with this spiritual mourning. Yes, spiritual mourning, not despair. Big difference. See, Satan loves to come after Christians with an overall vague and depressing sense of failure that makes you want to throw in the towel and just quit on the Christian life and think, I can never live the Christian life. That's not what Jesus is talking about. So I want you to get a hold of this clarification I'm trying to make. And it might sound to you like it's subtle, but it is critical in your ability to persevere and not lose heart. Persevere and not lose heart. Persevere and not lose heart. So here's what I want you to understand, some of you today, maybe for the very first time. When you feel an overwhelming, depressing sense of total failure in all areas of your life, trust me, that is not your heavenly father and that is not the spirit of our resurrected savior at work in you, that's your enemy. And your flesh, your enemy and your flesh. Oh, you gotta start recognizing that because spiritual mourning is always over specific sins instead of some nebulous feeling of malaise that just settles over you like a fog of confusion and despair that makes you wanna quit, that makes you not wanna go to community group, that makes you not wanna be around other believers. I'm not like everybody else. I'm in this special category of biggest loser. That's not your heavenly father. That's not the spirit of your resurrected savior. That is your enemy. That's your enemy trying to cut you off and lead you into isolation and despair. When you are spiritually mourning, you are able to see your own specific sins clearly. And you're willing to own them honestly without defending, blame shifting, excusing, or being evasive. But you have 
hope in the midst of it. Hope. That's the work of the Spirit that's leading you into spiritual mourning. And trust me, it is so rare and refreshing to see it in yourself or others around you. It actually is rare and refreshing because it's the work of the Spirit, different than our flesh. I've been counseling for over 30 years now. And here's something I've started to recognize. Oh, yes, diversity, complexity of problems, personalities, experiences, struggles, all over the map. But guess what I've started to notice is common. One thing I know, regardless of what the issue was that brought them in, regardless of personality, life history, one thing I have learned and know without a doubt for sure, the person I'm trying to help will not see any progress or change in their life until they stop talking about sin in general or everybody else's sin and start owning their own sin in particular. Oh my goodness, that is not normal. That is not natural to begin to see your own sin, your own sin in particular. It's a work of the Spirit of God leading you to repentance and change. And I think it's interesting, even right here in Isaiah chapter six, this moment that Isaiah's having, did you pick up on it? Even in the case of Isaiah, He has been smitten by a specific sin, not an overall, general, vague, nebulous sense of I'm just terrible. Did you hear it? Woe is me, I'm undone because I am a man of unclean lips. Now let's be honest. I'm sure that was not his only sin. But here's what's going on. It's the sin that God, by his spirit, was pressing on him in that moment. And that is how our Father works. That is how the Spirit of our Savior works. Not everything at once. Not overall total failure and unworthiness that causes you to want to just quit altogether. But now let me clarify some more. When you are spiritually mourning by God's Spirit at work in you, yes, you begin to see your own specific sins, but you do not have to see them all at once or it would be overwhelming. In other words, you will be convicted to cry out to God but not be paralyzed to give up because you're not seeing all your sin at once. See, here's where I want you to appreciate. Our God, our Father, is a good Father and He knows us. He understands how frail we are how weak we are. He understands our frame. That's why I love Psalm 103. Listen to Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Get this, your heavenly father knows how frail you are, and so he's not looking to crush you He's looking to convict you and grow you with hope to become more like Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. That's what spiritual mourning looks like. In other words, if he wanted to, right? If God wanted to, he could just throw on a floodlight and show you all the junk in the deepest, darkest recesses of your soul at once. 
But he doesn't do it that way. And he doesn't do it that way for a reason. He's a good father who's not looking to crush you, but is looking to simply convict you and grow you to be more like Christ. So how does he do it? How does he do this? Well, let me illustrate it for you by talking about the difference between a floodlight and a flashlight. There's similarities. Both are able to help you see what you're not seeing. Isn't that true? Both can help you see what you're not seeing. Both can show you what's going on in that murky, unfinished basement of your house. But they do it in two very different ways. A floodlight could show you all the filth and mess in that entire basement from corner to corner in a way that would just leave you overwhelmed about where to even begin and having any hope that it could ever be different. That's why some of your basements look the way they do right now. Where would I even begin, right? Let me help you here. Your father always uses a flashlight, flashlight as he leads you into the murky basement of your soul because he wants to illuminate and bring into your view just a few areas to be working on. Just like in the basement, you could point it. You're not seeing everything. You're just seeing this now. And you're just seeing this now. And you're just seeing this now. That's how our God does it so that you're not overwhelmed by all of it at once. Now stay with me. It doesn't mean God never uses a floodlight. You say, Brad, what's he do with the floodlight? Oh, some really good news here. Our God uses indeed a floodlight, but he puts the floodlight on Jesus while he uses a flashlight to bring into our view specific particular sins for us to be working on. Why does he do it that way? Because the Holy Spirit does not want you to just despair in yourself. He wants you to hope in Christ. And so he has this floodlight, flashlight ministry going on in your life. So that you not be overwhelmed. Now, you say, Brad, how do I keep this floodlight, flashlight ministry going in my life? This is going to sound familiar. You read your Bible, how much of it? Say it again. Say it like you mean it. Say it like you might even do it. God knows what he's doing. You think about the Bible, right? Floodlight, flashlight. Do we get specific pointing out about sins? Oh, yeah, read the letters to the churches. It's like watch out for this, work on your mouth, work on marriage, work on parenting, work on job, work on attitude, work on anger. There's a reason he gave us four gospels, not one. Matthew, here's Jesus. Floodlight on Jesus. Got it. No, you don't. Mark. Here's Jesus, got it, no you don't. Luke, here's Jesus, got it, no you really don't. John, here's Jesus. Floodlight on your Savior, his compassion, how he approaches broken sinners, how he treats people who are messed up, how he sees how weak and frail we are, right? Woman caught in adultery. Woman at the well, five husbands, guy you're living with now is not your husband. We don't have to wonder what he would be like, how he would treat you. Floodlight on Jesus, a compassionate, loving, gentle savior, and then flashlight on some specific sins. 
But some of you, you've allowed your enemy to flip that completely around. You've got floodlight on your sin in general. You're just a loser. Who do you think you are? Look at you. You say you're a Christian. And it's just this malaise, this nebulous, I just want to quit. And then pin light on Jesus, if at all. Oh, listen to me. You've got to have a floodlight on your Savior as God by his Spirit points a flashlight at some of your sins. And you've got to learn to distinguish the difference of the voice of your father and the voice of your enemy. And I got good news for you. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Some of you have been listening to the wrong voice for way too long. Floodlight on your savior, flashlight on specific sins. So get this, here's how I'd put it to you. Hope is always a signature mark of spiritual mourning, not despair. Hope is a signature mark of spiritual mourning, not despair. So what about you? Have you been seeing your own specific sins and feeling convicted? Good, but we're not done. Has that conviction has, have, had the signature mark of hope along with it. Oh, that's why I have a savior. Oh, that's why Christ died and rose again. Oh, he's with me. He lives in me. Oh, he'll help me. Oh, I've got direct access to his throne day and night because he intercedes for me. Oh, I've got brothers and sisters in Christ that can relate. Oh, I've got God's word alive to me. Does your conviction have the signature mark of hope in it? If not, I would challenge some of you to strongly reconsider who are you listening to? See, this, this balanced ministry of floodlight, flashlight, it's the same thing you see the Apostle Paul talking about in 2 Corinthians 6.10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, when he says that kingdom people are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. What are you talking about, Paul? That's kind of weird. How would you be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing? Oh, you can see what he's talking about in his own personal testimony in Romans chapter seven. Paul got a hold of this. If you know Paul, then he said, I'm the chief of sinners. Call me the biggest sinner. Read Romans seven. It's like, oh, the good that I wanna do, I don't do the very thing I said I'll stop doing, I keep doing. Oh, he's not perfect, but oh, he's got a hold of this floodlight, flashlight balance because here's what he says in Romans seven. Oh, wretched man that I am. Now, some of you've got it. Great. But you shouldn't have stopped there. So he's got the sorrow and the spiritual mourning. Oh, wretched man that I am. But he doesn't stop there. But thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you aren't getting to Jesus. You're just right here. Paul had the, oh, wretched man that I am. <gasps> and but thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, flashlight on his sin, wretched man that I am, floodlight on his Savior, thanks be to God. Let me give you another characteristic of what spiritual mourning really looks like. Number two, when you are spiritually mourning, your intellectual beliefs will be ignited 
with an emotion that leads you to do something about your sin. In other words, you don't just wallow in it because spiritual mourning is at the very heart of biblical repentance. Spiritual mourning is at the heart of biblical repentance. And I know that word repentance is not a word we use much, so let me unpack it a little more for you. Spiritual mourning includes beliefs that have turned into actions because you've changed the way you think by aligning it with what God says and thinks. Spiritual mourning leads to biblical repentance that is all about a change of thought that leads to a change in behavior and life. In other words, when you're spiritually mourning, seeing specific sins and not just general overwhelm, when you're spiritually mourning, what you say you believe will be seen in how you behave. What you say you believe will be seen in how you behave. Oh, listen to me. We have a generation of so-called Christians today that are out there blogging and writing books that I just want to vomit on. That it's all about grace, 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 grace. I can live any way I want. Don't don't begin to tell me anything about change and behavior because that's legalism, man. Don't be getting legalistic with me. It's grace. My answer, shut up. Yes, it is grace, my friends. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. But when the grace of God that saves you explodes within you, he doesn't leave you where you were when he found you. You don't become perfect. It's three steps forward and two steps back. It's I'm standing up making progress. I fall down. It's that I struggle. But here's the key word. I'm struggling against sin. These so-called Christians that act like there's no place to fight against sin and that's just legalism are not reading their Bibles. Change by God's grace. The spirit of the resurrected Christ lives in you. You have direct access to his throne day and night. His word is alive to you and you've got the brothers and sisters of Christ around you. God never never called us to Christ with the intent that you would look largely unchanged in any significant ways for the next 10, 20, 30 30 years. No way. No way. What you say you believe will start showing up in how you behave. Because the Bible, my friends, talks about faith and repentance as being two sides of the same salvation coin that leads you to Christ. But we've got a culture of so-called Christians that want to treat repentance as if it's optional. Optional. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'll just consider what the Bible says about every area of my life. My money, my mouth, lying, stealing, sleeping with my girlfriend, adultery, porn. And then I'll decide whether I'm going to obey it or not. But I'm a Christian who's not on his or her way to hell. Because I took Jesus as Savior... If you're wondering why I look largely just like the world, oh, I took him as savior. I just didn't go to that next level and make him Lord. Let me help you here. The Bible doesn't talk that way. If you have no desire to obey and follow your savior and you're not even making any plans to try, you're probably not in the kingdom. You might be religious. You might be in a church somewhere. Folks, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Are we perfect? 
No, but that old way of thinking, I want my sin more than I want my Savior, is gone. That old way of thinking, I can't do anything but sin, I'm a slave to sin, is gone. I've been set free by Christ, and I I love him. For the love of Christ compels me. Therefore, not legalism, not law breathing down my neck, not guilt, not shame, not condemnation, but when he sets you free, you wanna follow him and you wanna live for him and you're sad when you blow it, but you do not make excuses and just blog endlessly. I'm a mess, I'm a mess, I'm a failure, I'm broken, I'm a mess. We got a culture that's almost like a badge of honor how messed up you can be. You know, my grandparents' generation was tight-lipped about their problems. You just weren't going to know they had any struggles. Well, we're way over here now. We've got a generation, a therapeutic generation that thinks, oh, I'm just going to talk about how bad I am and how messed up I am, and it's so authentic and it's so real. Problem? I have no intentions of changing any of it. I'm just going to tell it all to you, especially on daytime television in the afternoon. And somehow that makes me a hero for being so honest. Folks, spiritual mourning is the very heart of biblical repentance that leads to a change of thinking. Are you going to change anything you think about that? No, I'm just going to talk about it on television. Well, then that's not what Jesus was talking about. New thinking that leads to new actions and a new struggle against sin because I have a savior who died for me and lives in me. First Peter said he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's given you what you need to not live perfectly, but to live radically different in a world. That's why later in this same sermon, folks, I know these have been heavy messages, but I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just bringing you what Jesus said. I'm not making this up bringing to what Jesus said. And guess what? Jesus would have never been a mega pastor today just trying to build parking garages with multiple levels and see how many people he could get. He was not a fan of just huge crowds for crowd's sake. This message, he was seeking to thin the crowd because Jesus came for disciples. He wanted to call some men and women to himself who would be disciples, who without money, without amazing resources could turn this world upside down because they were living so radically different. We got a world today where someone at work finds out you're a Christian, like, what, you're a Christian? That shouldn't happen that way. They should have already thought there is something different about her and her attitude, the way she treats people. She asks for forgiveness. She doesn't steal. She doesn't lie on the expense account. It shouldn't be, no way, you're a Christian. Wow. Should have already known sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. What you say you believe starts showing up in how you behave. But let me press it some more. When you're spiritually mourning, it means What you choose to confess, you're also willing to forsake. See, confession alone is not the end, folks. It's the beginning of a path towards spiritual mourning and repentance. But it's not not the end, just confessing. Proverbs 28, 13 is a verse I use all the time in counseling that I think captures it well. Because usually when we're in counseling, we're there because somebody has admitted something. Good, but we're not done. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever covers their sin will not prosper. Okay, that's one problem. If you're just trying to pretend you're not a sinner and cover it all up, but there's another problem. But whoever confesses, are we done? 
and, say it, forsakes it, will have mercy. Confession alone is not enough. It does not capture what spiritual mourning is all about because it's just the first step. Now, don't hear me saying you'll just leave it immediately and be done and you'll never struggle again. No, that's not what it. But you want to forsake it. You're not making excuses saying that's just who I am. Well, that's just who I am. If you understood my background and my family, what I've been through, that's just who I am. I'll always be an angry man with a short fuse. I'll always be an adulterer. I just don't feel committed to one woman. I'm just not there. I have a sexual addiction. No, you have a sin problem, my friend. And you need to repent. You need to have a mindset. My intent is to forsake it. It may be a knockdown, drag out battle, but by God's Spirit and the resurrected Christ in me and brothers and sisters around me and crying out to a high priest that intercedes for me day and night, my intent is to fight this sin and forsake it, not just confess it. Dr. Alan Redpath makes a very sobering statement when he says this, God has not promised to forgive one sin that you are not willing to forsake. Oh. Now don't hear me saying he won't forgive a sin that you don't perfectly never do again. What he is saying is what I'm trying to say. If you come to God thinking, I'll just confess this to God because it makes me feel a little better, but I know I have no intentions of laying it down or letting it go or fighting against this or forsaking it. I'm gonna keep it. I just wanna confess to God because it does make me feel a little better. Is this making sense? That's not spiritual mourning because it's not biblical repentance. Forsaking your sin is never optional. If you just think I'll confess it but I have no intentions... So many people today, so many people today have a presumptuous attitude about God's mercy and forgiveness as if he owes it to us and it's our right to have him forgive us and give us mercy whenever we want it, regardless of whether or not we intend to repent, regardless of whether we're bringing a heart of repentance wanting to forsake it. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Professor Don Carson talks about studying in Germany, working on his PhD, and as he was in that season of life, he met a very articulate West African French student who was working on his PhD while his wife was back in London working on a medical degree. And they became friends, so they started eating a meal together once a week. And Dr. Carson noticed that this young man would slip into the red-light district of their city once or twice a week. He's got a wife back in London. So one day as they were eating, he brought it up and he said, what would you think or do if you found out that your wife back in London was doing the same thing you're doing here? And he said, oh, I'd kill her. And Dr. Carson said, "Uh, that's a bit of a double standard, don't you think? He said, oh, you don't understand. In my country where I come from, Men can sleep with as many women as they like, but if the woman does it, she must be killed. And Dr. Carson said, but you told me that you grew up in a mission school and you were taught the Bible and God. Surely you know God does not have a double standard like that. And he said, when he said that to him, the man's face brightened with a big smile. And the guy said, ah, les bon Dieu, 
Il du nous pardonner ses son métier. Ah, God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. Now, does that rub you the wrong way at all? I hope it does, because my friends, it rubs a holy God the wrong way. Because that is arrogant, presumptuous, and not even anywhere near the ballpark of spiritual mourning over your sin. So I want you to notice what Isaiah 55 says about God and our sin. In Isaiah 55, 6 to 9, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Oh, look at this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thinking. Do you see what's going on here? That's repentance. You're saying, I'm willing to change what I think about this. Here's what I've always thought. Here's what I believe. Here's what I think. Here's what I... Forsake your own thoughts and say, God, I want to align my thoughts with what you say about that and forsake the path that you're on. Yeah. Come to the Lord while he may be found. But it doesn't say come to him still clinging to your sin saying I'm not going to let this go or lay this down at all. I have no intentions of forsaking it. He does not say you'll be pardoned and have mercy then. Let him return to the Lord and the Lord will have mercy on him and will abundantly pardon him. When the wicked forsakes their way and lets go of their thoughts about it. And once again, I know this is a heavy message, but Jesus meant for it to be heavy. Folks, the stakes are high. We're talking about heaven or hell. Your eternal destiny is at stake. If you're here and you think you're a Christian because you prayed some prayer or threw a stick in the fire or got baptized or did something and you're not, oh, what a horrific thing to land in hell one day and say, oh my goodness. In fact, this this chunk of, of, of verses that we're digging into, it's part of a bigger sermon. And later in this same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus literally says in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Don't just call me Lord, and you have no intention to do the things that I say. Again, don't, Here's what people do when I talk that way and Jesus talks, but I thought we were saved by grace. You are. So don't hear me saying, do the things that he says so that you can get saved. You do them well enough and finally you're saved. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus what? But when he saves you, you don't just call him Lord. You begin to follow him. Not perfectly. You fall down, you get up, but you want to follow him. You want to please him. You want to become more like him. And so there starts to be change. Why do you call me? Here's the sobering word that Jesus gave to those who call him Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that he says. He said on that final day, he will look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. There was no relationship with Jesus Christ. You had not submitted to King Jesus. You had just become religious. Maybe Jesus just became your confessor priest. It just feels good to confess how bad I am to somebody. I don't know. Apart from me, I never 
knew you. So how can we feel the weight of our own sin and yet still be comforted? Because he said, they shall be comforted and not crushed. Ah, the only way you can do that is by seeing Jesus, by knowing Jesus. The answer has everything to do with Jesus who had no sin of his own but was willing to be crushed by our sins. You see, when you enter spiritual mourning, you're always seeing more than your own sin. You're also seeing your Savior and what he did about it. That's why Robert Murray Machane gives excellent counsel when he says this. He says, for every look at yourself, and I know this message has challenged you to look at yourself, see your own sin. You better not just do that. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Floodlight, flashlight. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Oh, wretched man that I am, but thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you the Throw the floodlight on our Savior and show you what I'm talking about. Turn to Isaiah 53 as we close. Isaiah 53. Floodlight on our Savior 700 years before he ever even took on flesh and came into this world. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3. He is despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I am so glad you're here. Look to Christ. I don't need you to join this church. I don't need you to put money in the boxes in the corner. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Don't become more religious. You are spiritually bankrupt. Poverty. You bring nothing to the table. You don't need a booster shot. You need a savior who died to set you free from sin and will live in you and help you, who will never leave you or forsake you. Come to Christ today. Come to Christ. And then some of you as believers, oh, how I've prayed this week. If you're that person that has just battled for most of your Christian life, this overwhelming general sense of unworthiness and failure and malaise that just makes you want to quit on a regular basis, I would encourage you, floodlight, flashlight, and ask God to help you discern better who is talking to you, who are you listening to. Learn the voice of your Savior. 
Get acquainted with your Savior. You can do that by reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See your Savior. Listen to your Savior. Sit at the feet of your Savior. Love your Savior. And he will live in and through you. Oh, God, thank you for your word that does not just throw a floodlight on our mess. You could. Oh, we've got plenty of verses that point out our mess. But oh, thank you that from Genesis to Revelation, there's this glorious theme of a savior, a redeemer, redemption, deliverance, and it's all found in a person, Jesus Christ, the God-man who came into our world and fully kept the law and pleased the holy God and laid down his life for us in payment for sin and rose again that we might be forgiven and have power to live radically different. Oh God, how we thank you. And we thank you in Jesus' name.